Last fall, I was on a flight somewhere, I don't remember where, and it, it seemed, I, I don't know, it seemed like the flight attendant that was sitting here in my part of the airplane took a distinct disliking to me. She was very friendly and attentive to everyone around me. But I struggled to get her attention. Everybody else was getting refills, and I couldn't. I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, maybe she didn't like my mask. Maybe she didn't like... I, I, I really don't know what it was. But it was clear that I was on her wrong side. Now, the stakes were low. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't get a refill. But... I, I still noticed it, right? Like, wow, there, there, some, somehow I got on the wrong side of this person. And, and it reminded me, in a very small way, but it reminded me of this advice that I remember my grandfather, who was a doctor, giving me a long time ago. I was doing an internship with him in the hospital, and uh, I had noted just how attentive and kind he was to all of the nurses. Even though he was like the, the chief of pediatrics, he was incredibly kind to the nurses. And I was talking to him about that, and he said, oh, never make enemies of the nurses. <laughs> because they can make your life miserable, right? Well, I don't know how I made an enemy of that flight attendant, but I was reminded to work harder not to the next time, which is actually tomorrow. So I'm going to be working on this. You can ask me next week, did, did I manage to stay on the right side of the flight attendant? Well, we've all experienced, I think, the ill effects at some point in our lives or another of, of making what, what seems like the wrong enemy, like getting on the wrong side of somebody. You know, we get on a teacher's bad side. We annoy the clerk at the DMV. We don't strike quite the right note of humble respect with the highway patrolman. And we pay for it, right? When that happens, we pay for it. But what do we do when the stakes aren't low, right? What, what do we do when someone is our enemy? Not, not because of something we've done or we said the wrong thing. What do we do when someone has become our enemy because of who we are? Because of our skin color or ethnicity or religion. Somebody is just against us. And, and what do we do in particular when that enemy has the power to do us real harm. You know, for many in this world, this is not a, a theoretical question. The most persecuted religious group worldwide, hands down, is Christianity. More Christians are persecuted for their faith because they are Christians than any other group in the world. Now, I know we don't experience that here, but even here, there is sometimes a cost to being a part of God's people. And when that happens, when, when we realize that somebody's just kind of against us because we're a Christian, I think it's really easy to wonder, gosh, are, am, I, am I doing something wrong? Did, did, did I approach this person the wrong way? Is, there, is, it, is it my fault? And then sometimes, particularly when the opposition is hard, is, is bad, we find ourselves wondering, well, where is God? 
Where's God when this happens? Why, why isn't he looking out for me? Or we, or we hear of Christians being persecuted around the world and, and we wonder, where is God when his people are on the receiving end of hatred simply for being Christians? Well, in a very different context, this is a question that the book of Esther attempts to answer. And we are just a few chapters into Esther when... <laughs> It just so happens that the wrong enemy is made. And we're going to find out what happens. Turn to Esther 3, if you would. Esther chapter 3. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided, those black Bibles, this is page 434. 434 Esther chapter 3. Uh, just to remind you where, where we are, let me uh, read just the, the last verse of chapter two and the first couple of verses of chapter three. So we're right at the end of, of chapter two. Mordecai has reported this, this, uh, this plot against the king. Verse 23, when the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. All right, we, I'm going to stop there just to set things up. We have finally come to the main action of the story. Everything up to now has been set up. But the action begins here, and we're finally meeting one of the last main characters. Now, we, we learn a little bit later in, in chapter 3 there in verse 7 that about five years have passed from the end of chapter 2. And we, you know, we were left at the end of chapter 2 expecting Mordecai to be rewarded, but, but he's not. Nothing happens. Instead, we find out at the beginning of chapter 3, some guy named Haman is promoted. He actually is promoted to, to a position that be sort of like prime minister, the king's right-hand man. Now, like all the other characters, uh, the, the name is going to tell us something about his role in the story. And Haman's name sounds like the, the Hebrew word for wrath, anger. And that's what he's about to bring down. Haman is about to bring down wrath, not just on Mordecai, but on all the Jews scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And and here's the point. I'm going to give it to you up front. Here's the point that I want you to take away from the chapter. Opposition to God's people is not random. It isn't random. But neither is our hope. Opposition to God's people isn't random. But neither is our hope. Now, how are we going to explore that idea? Well, we're going to explore it by just recognizing that Haman is mad. M-A-D, mad. So we are going to consider a motivated hatred. An ancient harm. And a demonstrated hope. Haman is mad, and this is going to help you understand what's going on here. Well, let's start then with this motivated hatred. 
Look at verse one again, and I'm going to read through verse uh, verse six. After all this took place, King Ahasuerus honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day and he still would not listen to them, They told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's action would be tolerated, since he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. He planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. All right. So in in keeping with his new position, everyone is commanded to to bow down, to pay homage to Haman. Now, this is not a a religious activity, right? This is just the typical way that you honor somebody in this particular ancient Near Eastern culture. And and everybody at the king's gate, this, this large administrative set of buildings, this complex, right? Everybody goes along with it except Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow down to pay Haman homage. Now, his co-workers on the royal staff, they notice and they, they ask, why, why aren't you doing this? We have to do it. Why aren't you? Right. And we're, we're actually not told his answer. You notice there we're, we're not given an explicit reply to their question. Well, they, they warn him over and over again. And finally, they decide and maybe it's because, well, gosh, we have to do it and he's not doing it. This doesn't seem fair. So, so they tell Haman. They, they want to see what's going to happen. They want to see what Haman's going to do about it. I mean, it just feels like typical office politics at this point. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a big set of buildings. There are a lot of people in it. Apparently, Haman had not even noticed. But now that he knows, you see there in verse 5, he is furious. He is filled with rage. Now, as we're going to see, as the book of Esther uh, unfolds, we are dealing with a very insecure and a very prideful man. And so often those two things go together, don't they? Well, he decides to make an example of Mordecai, but not just Mordecai. There in verse 6, when he's informed of his ethnicity, that Mordecai is a Jew, he decides, well, it's not enough just to to bring Mordecai down. I'm I'm going to destroy all of the Jewish people scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And, And basically at this point, that means all of the Jews. Because basically all of the Jews that were carried off into exile under the Assyrians are now part of the Persian Empire. And, and of course, and they're, they're just scattered and kind of lost. And, 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 of course, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin that were carried off under Nebuchadnezzar, they are now part of the Persian Empire. All, all the Jews that have gone back to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and soon Ezra and Nehemiah will follow, they are part of the Persian Empire. And Haman wants to destroy all of them. Now, right away, I, I think if you're... If you're a curious reader, we've got two questions. First, what's up with Mordecai? I mean, there's nothing religious about honoring your superior, 
But it, it was just a normal thing in that culture uh, to, to, to bow down to a guy that was higher in rank than, than you are. This is not, though you might think of it, this is not like Daniel's three friends uh, a few decades earlier who refused to bow down and worship the, the golden image of King Nebuchadnezzar. That was a religious act. That's not what's going on here. And, and it's, it's really kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's, we know he's, he's told Esther to like hide your ethnicity. Don't call attention to yourself. Well, Mordecai doesn't seem to be listening to his own advice, does he? We're not told what his answer was to the people when they said, why why aren't you obeying? But we are given this hint in verse four. Since he had told them he was a Jew. Why would being a Jew prevent you from bowing down and just showing normal respect to Haman? Well, perhaps the answer to that question is bound up with the second question that that just jumps out at you, right? Which is, what's Haman got against the entire Jewish people? Right? You can understand his rage, kind of, at Mordecai. But every last living Jew? I mean, it's a little excessive, don't you think? Well, as I noted before, Haman's name sounds like wrath, and that's that's the role he's going to play in this narrative, but there is more to his identity than that. If you look back at verse one, we're told that Haman is the son of Hamadatha, probably his dad or maybe his granddad. He's the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Agagite. Well, it's at this point that Mordecai's introduction back in chapter two, verse five, as son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, all of a sudden pops into significance. You see, Kish was the father of King Saul. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul, as king, is sent on a mission against another king, King Agag. Now he's told, Saul is told, to kill that king, to kill King Agag and all of his people, And all of their livestock, they're not to leave anyone or anything alive. And he's to do this as as judgment from the Lord. He's he's like going as 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 the Lord's avenger, as the the Lord's destroying angel, as it were, uh, against uh, Agag and his people. But in first Samuel 15, Saul disobeys and Saul spares the life of King Agag. That disobedience would be the reason that God uh, explains this. This is the reason that I'm removing Saul from before me as king. Samuel, the prophet, would would come along and, and confront Saul for this. And Samuel, the prophet, would execute King Agag. But but clearly some of his descendants survived all the way down to Haman. So we don't know for certain because the text doesn't say for certain. But when you put these two genealogies next to each other, it it seems that Mordecai felt that to bow to Haman was to repeat Saul's disobedience, to be unfaithful to the Lord, to to deny his Jewishness. Clearly, Haman 
knows his history. Because when he hears that Mordecai is not just, you know, an insubordinate, but he's an insubordinate Jew. Oh, well, now we understand that his anti-Semitism, and it's clearly anti-Semitism, isn't motivated merely by a, a personal slight. But this is like a, this is like a blood feud. This is, this is like the Hatfields and the McCoys. I, I, I should just stop for a moment because we just, we just uh, I think in the last week, uh, marked Holocaust Remembrance Day. And it's worth noting that anti-Semitism has not gone away. Anti-Semitism continues to mark the society of which we are a part. Uh, we, we, we saw that terrible hostage taking at the synagogue uh, down in Texas. Uh, we, we, we have witnessed multiple shootings at multiple synagogues uh, around the nation these last few years. If you paid attention to the devotional that I sent out, uh, the, the most common form of violence, religiously motivated violence in America on a per capita basis is anti-Semitism, according to the FBI's own reports. There, there has been a, a, a 100, over 100% increase in anti-Semitic words, acts of violence in our nation in the last year. It should just go without saying, shouldn't it, that anti-Semitism has no place in the life of a Christian. And, And yet, sadly, so often, it is those who identify as Christians that have been at the forefront of anti-Semitism in history. Uh, the, the, the medieval church was, was, was positively anti-Semitic. Uh, Martin Luther, one of, one of my theological heroes, was embarrassingly anti-Semitic. I, I mean, I, if he hadn't recovered the gospel, we would not be celebrating him today. Because of just how virulently anti-Semitic he, he was. Again and again and again, it, it has been Christians. Maybe in some misguided notion of that, 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 that because the Jews rejected Christ, that, that, that it's okay for us to be anti-Semitic. But it should not be. It should not be. We of all people... As Gentile believers, especially, we of all people should be anti-anti-Semitic because we owe our salvation to the Jews. We, we owe our hope to the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who in grace has, has grafted in the Gentiles who before had no hope, no knowledge of God in the world. Well, If you find yourself in this next week or this next month in the presence of somebody telling a Jewish joke, making anti-Semitic remarks, I, I hope that you as a believer will be quick to make it clear that that is not okay. That is not okay because, because it's just wrong, right? Jews 
like everybody else, are made in the image of God and deserve our respect. But as a Christian, it is especially not okay. I know many of you, or at least some of you, were concerned to learn last spring that I'm an amillennialist, not a premillennialist. But I'm one of those amillennialists who has great, great hope that before the end comes, there will be many Jews that come to know Christ as their Savior. We should have no room for anti-Semitism in our hearts or in our communities. Now, having said that, let, let me just go on to say that I think we miss the real significance of this kind of motivated hatred if we reduce it to uh, Hatfield versus McCoy's or if we reduce it to a kind of modern understanding of anti-Semitism. Go, going back to 1 Samuel 15, we, we need to realize that the, the Lord sent Saul on that mission because God had declared a perpetual and enduring holy war against Agag's people, the Amalekites. Why were the Amalekites to be wiped out from under the, the face of heaven? Well, it's not because they were one of those seven nations, right? There were seven nations in Canaan that Israel was, was told to, to wipe out completely in, in order to inherit the promised land. The, the Amalekites were not one of those seven nations. That's, that's not why. It's because of what they did to Israel on the way out of Egypt. I, I want you to just listen as, as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Here's what God says to Moses about the Amalekites. God says in Deuteronomy 25 verse 17, remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land, the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Do not forget. This is why Saul's disobedience was so serious. This is why Mordecai could not bow to Haman, the Agagite. The Amalekites had no reason to attack Israel as they left Egypt. The, the, the Israelites were not wanting to settle in the Amalekites' land. The Israelite, Israelites were not threatening the Amalekites in any way. They had no reason to attack Israel except that they had no fear of God. That they hated God. And so they fell under God's enduring judgment as the enemy of God's people. You know, as I said in the devotional this week, there is an enmity in this world that transcends ethnic enmity and political enmity and cultural enmity. It is a spiritual enmity, a, a spiritual hatred. And the roots of that hatred go back way before Malik. They go all the way back to the beginning. 
In Genesis chapter 3, God says to the serpent in, in his curse and in his judgment against Satan, he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That statement in Genesis 3.15 isn't about human hostility towards snakes any more than Haman's rage is about modern anti-Semitism. It is about an opposition, an opposition that was placed by God himself between the people of God, the spiritual offspring of the woman and the people of the world, the spiritual offspring of the deceiver. From the world's side, this hatred of God's people is motivated by an even more fundamental hatred of God himself. So Christian, when you encounter the world's opposition, when you encounter the world's hatred on account of your faith, you should not be surprised by it. Now, that opposition should never be on account of our rudeness. That that opposition should never be on account of our offensiveness. We are not in the business of owning the non-Christians. That's not our job. But we should not automatically assume that when opposition comes, we're doing something wrong. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. The apostle John observes in John chapter three, light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Christian, understand as you go through this life, that when you encounter opposition on account of your faith, you should not be surprised. The world's hatred is a motivated hatred. It's almost like I want to say to you, like, don't take it personally. It's not finally you that they hate. It's your God that they hate. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I well imagine that you have run into some very irritating Christians. I know I have. Christians can say really stupid things. Christians can be really self-righteous. Christians can be really annoying. But I would just invite you to consider your own heart. Is, is the strength of, of your distaste for Christians really worth what they've done, what they've said? C- could it be that your dislike for Christians, could it be that your distaste for Christians is actually coming from someplace much, much deeper? And that's your own opposition to God himself. I would just invite you to consider it. Well, now that we know where the hatred comes from, 
What does that hatred want to do? Where does it lead? Well, it leads, second, to an ancient harm. Haman is mad. His motivated hatred leads him to an ancient harm. Let's pick up the story in verse 7. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day in each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. Then Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. And I will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. The king removed his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. It was intended for the royal satraps, the governors of each of the provinces, and the officials of each ethnic group, and written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the peoples so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. Haman's goal is genocide. That's his goal. But of course, he can't do that by himself. He needs a plan. Well, the first thing he does is he casts the purr, the, the, the lot, to figure out what is the most propitious month and day to carry out my plan. Now, the day that the lot is cast, it's, it's, it's the first month of the year. And the lot actually falls on the last month of the year, the 12th month. So now that he knows what month and what day he's going to carry this out, then it's time to go see King Headache, right? Who's about to be, yet again, a headache for a lot of people, verse 8. And we're getting used to this, right? True, true to form, Ahasuerus is very easily manipulated. Like, he doesn't even ask a little, Tell me more about these people and what's your proof that they're disobeying the laws? No, 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 no. He, he's easily manipulated. He gives Haman the authority to carry out the plan there in verse 11. And I'm sure the, the promise of money didn't hurt. 375 tons of silver. That the, literally, it's 10,000 talents of silver. That was equal to more than half of the annual royal revenue, at least according to Herodotus. And King Headache could use the money, 
Remember where Esther started, right? He was, he was getting ready to go to war with Greece. Well, he went to war with Greece and it was disastrous. He lost. He was defeated. And he spent a lot of money losing. So it'd be kind of nice to replenish the treasury with all this money. Where was Haman going to get the money? Well, maybe Haman is rich. We, we, we don't know. Maybe he's just intending to, to kind of pay himself back by all this plunder from the massacred Jews. All we know is that he's got the authority. The king's agreed. And so all that's left to do is to write up the orders in all the languages of the empire and send it out. And that, that's another interesting thing about this. It speaks to how easily Xerxes uh, Ahasuerus was, was manipulated because the Persian empire was actually known for its tolerance. You, you know, several times we've been told about things being written in every language and going to all the different ethnicities. This was one of the things that marked the Persian empire. Oh, but not for the Jews. Not this time. So the scribes are summoned and they're summoned, verse 12, on the 13th day of the first month of the year. The, the event, this, this massacre of the Jews everywhere, is going to occur precisely 11 months later on the 13th day of the last month. Just as the lot had indicated. Without doubt, that promise of plunder is going to motivate at least some formerly peaceful neighbors to become rampaging murderers. Well, the orders go out. Haman and the king sit down to feast. In verse 15, the city was left in confusion. It's actually the language. They're aghast. They've never seen such a cold-blooded order go out. And they don't know what to make of it. Well, one of the questions that I think immediately comes up as we read this is why genocide? Why not one of the other really terrible things that Haman could have done? Why why not decimation where you you literally kill every tenth person? Why, Why not slavery? Why not just get the king to, to agree to order them all to, be, to become slaves, sold into slavery? You could raise a lot of money that way. There were a host of other terrible options. Why this most extreme? Well, I think once again, it goes back to Saul and Agag. Saul was commanded by God to commit genocide against the Amalekites. So in 1 Samuel 15... Beginning in verse two, this is what the Lord of armies says. I witness what the Amalekites did to the Israelites when they opposed them along the way as they were coming out of Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. So you could say that Haman's order of genocide is is kind of payback for what was done to his ancestors. But I don't think that's quite right. The reason Saul was commanded to commit genocide against the Amalekites is that this was a lex talionis judgment, a judgment that perfectly fit the original crime. 
for what the Amalekites had attempted against Israel as they left Egypt. Who remember back to the passage in Deuteronomy that I read earlier? Who were the Amalekites killing when they attacked the stragglers in the Israelite column? Who's going to be at the rear? The women and the children. The weak, the sick, the aged. You know, there's more than one way to commit genocide. You don't have to kill every last person. You just have to kill all the women and children. Once again, we need to understand the spiritual roots of this ancient harm that Haman is pursuing. The goal of the enemy of God's people has always and from the very beginning been their total destruction. I mean, we see that in Genesis 3. In, in the garden, when, when, when Satan comes to tempt Adam and Eve, Satan lied to them. He knew full well that Adam and Eve would die. That was his goal. That's always been the goal. And as you, as you survey the history of God's people and, and their interaction with the world, that, that has always been the goal. That, that was Pharaoh's goal, throwing all the baby boys into the river. It was Amalek's design, we've already read about. It was the Philistines' goal under Goliath. It was actually basically what Assyria carried out when they carried the northern tribes into exile and they disappeared. It was Nebuchadnezzar's goal. The destruction of God's people. Their dissolution and submersion into the mass of humanity until you couldn't tell the difference anymore. You couldn't find them anymore. Again, if you're here this morning and and, and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand very clearly what the enemy of God desires for you. The enemy of God does not desire your good. The enemy of God, Satan, desires your murder. Satan wants nothing other than the eternal destruction of you personally, body and soul. Now he's telling you, that going your own way, sin, rebellion, being your own God, being your own master, following the ways of the world. He is telling you that this is going to bring you all the life and pleasure you could ever imagine. But he's lying to you. It's all he knows how to do. He was a liar from the beginning and he is still lying. I would just plead with you. Do not be complicit in your own destruction. Do not keep going the way of this world. For it means your death. I was thinking about Holocaust Remembrance Day and various things that have been going on around the world. And, and I was struck that, that we, we remember things like the Holocaust uh, b- because we, we say to ourselves, you know, never forget so that never again. 
And yet, how many genocides have there been since World War II? You think about what happened to, to uh, the Muslims in Bosnia and Serbia. You think about what happened in Rwanda. Again and again and again, there have been genocides, attempted genocides, real genocides. You think about what's going on right now in China against the Uyghurs. And and of course, it's not a 20th and 21st century thing. Genocides have been going on for all of human history. We've got a member of our own church, Nick Manchurian, whose family are are descendants of survivors of the Armenian genocide that that Turkey committed against Armenia. It shouldn't surprise us that that, that despite our slogans, despite our remembrances, there is a persistence of genocide in this world. Because you see, this is Satan's design for humanity. And he's quite happy to see it happen one group of people at a time. This is the kind of world we live in. Christian, you need to understand that the enemy, though, has a, has a special hatred for the church. Not least because... We are the main obstacle to his plan for the destruction of human beings. In in the Old Testament, his wrath is clearly focused on Israel, the visible people of God, the only people in the world that could tell other people about the hope that could be found in God. But now that the gospel has come, we, we are the Israel of God. We are the true spiritual Israel. And he would like nothing more than to discredit our witness, to dull our sense of urgency, to choke us with the cares and worries of this world so that the gospel would not go out, so, so that the, the, the people that he hates Humanity would not hear and not turn and so not be saved. It it shouldn't surprise us, right, that that Jesus and the New Testament apostles are constantly and repeatedly warning us to be watchful. Right? Our our enemy, the devil, is, is prowling around seeing who he might devour. This world, I've said this before, This world is not a playground. It is a battlefield of immense spiritual urgency and immense spiritual danger. Are you living like it, Christian? When when people look at your life, do do they see somebody who's watchful, who, who understands that we are in a battle? Or do they see somebody that is just at play in the world, at ease and comfortable? I think one of the main ways the enemy can accomplish his genocidal designs against God's people today is by blurring the distinction between the church and the world. 
between God's people and the ungodly. That, that's not always been a strategy. At, at times in history, the, the enemy has attempted the wholesale destruction of the church. That is what you see in the seven and eight hundreds A.D. as Islam rolls over North Africa and the church disappears. So there have been times in history where wholesale destruction is the strategy. There have been other times in history where, where Satan has gone after just sort of the corruption of the church. So that the church is so distracted by wealth and power and luxury that, that, that they lose sight of the care of souls. I mean, we clearly see that in the medieval church. But I think the threats today are different. The threats to the church today, especially here in North America, are moral compromise on the one hand and political subordination on the other hand. And both of those dangers, moral compromise and political capture, both of those dangers come from both sides, the left and the right. One side doesn't have a monopoly on one of those two. No, both are coming at us from both directions all the time. And they have the same effect. The vanishing of the church. The vanishing of the church as a distinct witness to Christ. So Hinson Baptist Church, how, how are we guarding against moral compromise on the one hand, political capture on the other hand? How, how are you guarding against that in your own life? How are you encouraging your fellow members against those two threats in their lives? Because we are meant to be a witness to this world. And nothing would make Satan happier if our witness disappeared. And there's more than one way to make that happen. Haman is mad. He's mad with a motivated hatred. He is pursuing an ancient harm. But Esther 3 very subtly reminds us that we have, third and finally, a demonstrated hope. Look again at verse 7. In the first month, the month of Nisan, in King Ahasuerus' twelfth year, the pur, that is the lot, was cast before Haman for each day and each month, and it fell on the twelfth month, the month Adar. Let's get down to verse 12. The royal scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and the order was written exactly as Haman commanded. Like the Amalekites before him, Haman has no fear of God. For, for him, the, the universe is ruled by the stars, by the fates, and, and the purr, which, which literally, look, if you could see one, it, it looks a lot like our modern-day dice, right? The, the, the purr will lead him to the most propitious day for his evil designs. But it's so very interesting, isn't it, that the author gives us the precise day and the precise month, the author of Esther, the first readers of Esther know something that Haman doesn't. They know the Lord of heaven and earth who said in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The question that Haman's edict presses is quite straightforward. 
Will God rescue his people yet again from the hand of their ancient enemy? Now, the answer to that is going to take many more chapters of the book of Esther to unfold. But it is already foreshadowed right here in chapter three in the dates that the lot indicated. Look again there at verse 12. The royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. The 13th day of the first month was not just any old day. It wasn't just, you know, like next Tuesday. The 13th day of the first month is the eve of Passover. The order for their annihilation, 11 months later, falls on the eve of Passover. And what was Passover? If not the demonstrated proof that God was for his people. At that moment, they they didn't know how God was going to do it. But surely they knew he would. They had 11 months to wait and see how he was going to accomplish this. As we're going to see in future weeks, as we keep working our way through the book of Esther, those 11 months are more than enough time for God behind the scenes, working through ordinary human actions to deliver his people. But what we need to understand this morning is the ultimate demonstration of our hope would wait more than 11 months. And it would come in the form of an even greater Passover. You see, the truth that is embedded in Esther chapter 3 is that because of their sin, Israel deserved to die. That's why they're in exile. They deserved it under the Persian Empire. They, they deserved it in Egypt. We all do. That was the penalty that God promised Adam and Eve. The day that you eat of the fruit that I told you, you shall not eat of it. On that day, you will die. They earned that penalty. And so have we. But friends, at the first Passover... When Egypt, when the, when the Israelites in Egypt also deserved to have all of their firstborn sons die, God provided a substitute, a Passover lamb, so that the firstborn in each family would not die. And at the last Passover, God did something even better. He provided his own son, his firstborn, only begotten. On the cross, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died, yes, under Roman penalty, but ultimately he died under the holocaust of God's wrath for sin, not his sin, but ours. So that that we, any of us who repent of going our own way and instead trust in him, any of us, might be spared the death that we deserve, might might be forgiven and and reconciled and, and restored to God as sons and as daughters, as friends of God and no longer enemies. You know, not only did Jesus die on the cross for sinners like us, God raised Jesus from the dead. 
He has ascended to heaven and the day is going to come when he returns to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, who will be able to stand before the Holocaust of his wrath, the Holocaust of his just anger for sin? I'll tell you who will stand. All of those that he redeemed by his blood. All of those who put their faith in the promise of God. And only those. Mordecai, in chapter 3, made the wrong enemy. He, He made an enemy of Haman. And that was a mistake. In one sense. But what we really need to understand coming out of Esther 3 is that ultimately it was Haman, the enemy of the Jews, who made the wrong enemy. Because he became the enemy of God. Friends, today the same choice is before you. Will you be an enemy of God? Or will you become his friend? Do not, do not remain his enemy. Do not remain his enemy, especially when he has now made it possible for you to be his friend. And not just his friend, but his son, his daughter. Christian, understand that being friends with God means being at enmity with the world. But do not be afraid. First John says in first John chapter four, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. In Christ, God is in you. Yes, you will face trouble in this world. But take heart. Because Jesus has overcome the world. Would you pray with me? Take just a moment and in the quietness of your own heart, consider what it means that by nature you are an enemy of God. And consider what it means that by grace you can be his friend. Lord God, we, we come to you. We come to you as your people. We come to you, though, as those who once were your enemy. And yet we know that you took the initiative. You made us your friend. Lord, we pray that we would treasure nothing more highly than your friendship. We we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would not fear what the world fears, that we would know with, with certainty that you are greater than the world. And we pray that that would lead us to now lead lives 
of joy in the face of sorrow, of of courage in in the face of opposition. And we pray all of this to the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen.